0: it says this husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by wash by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, she might be holy without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as, as their own body he who loves his wife loves himself for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church we are the members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold, uh, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. at City Light, hey, there I am. And, uh, and thanks for being here with us this afternoon on a very cold uh, weekend as we kind of move through our series on relationships and head into our second week, which is on dating. If you were with us last week, you would have dug into the biblical idea of marriage and why that is central in the heart and mind of God. And, uh, and now this week, uh, we dig into the second one, uh, which is on dating. And again, as Gav mentioned before, our, our purpose in this is, that, is to... For you to be biblically, if you're a follower of Jesus here, to be biblically wise people who know the Scriptures deeply and what God has to say about all manner of things, particularly when it comes to relationships and sexuality. If you're here and skeptical about these things, we'd love for you just to see what Christians are talking about when we talk about relationships, and it's not just about a way of living, but it's what we believe God has laid out as a design for for relationships to flourish. And it matters because I think it brings real clarity to things that are sometimes difficult to manage. If you had to summarize the dating game in our current climate and context, if you were to put one word over the top of it, I think it would be fair to put ambiguity over the top. And I think many people's experience of dating is one of, of wrestling with ambiguity. I was reminded of this one speaking to a friend about... Uh, uh, a girl he was hanging out with who was kind of in and around our friendship group. And I remember I asked him, I said to him just one week, is that, just to check in, is that your girlfriend? And he said, well, like we've hooked up a couple of times now. And I think if we hook up one more time, then she probably is. And if not, then probably not. And I was like, okay, fair enough. That's one, way, that's one way to skin a cat, I guess. But look, that may or may not be your experience of things. But I would say that that's a reasonably normal experience of engaging in the dating game in our current context. Uh, And we swim in the murky water of kind of sexual connection and vague commitments and trying to make clear things that are sometimes unclear. And some of this is quite self-conscious. I don't know if you know, but we live on the other side of a major historical event for our culture anyway, which was the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution systematically went through and said, look, all these old categories for relationships, all this starchy old stuff, marriage commitment all the formal stuff that goes with that we're done with that we need something more free-flowing more organic more authentic more genuine we want the kind of thing look you don't have to put a label on it we don't need to be deliberate about things let's just make it a bit more organic and on one level what this did was to create a certain amount of confusion around things on one level the dating game can just be confusing Sometimes it's things like we hang out all the time, but he won't talk about where we're at. We flirt all the time, but she's not really clear with her intentions. That's a kind of base level confusion. Sometimes it can be a little bit more painful. She slept with me, but now she won't return my calls. We hook up all the time. Why doesn't he want to meet my family? And it goes on and on, whereas some people's experience of it is quite acutely painful. But either way, at some point, it's worth asking the question, Is what we're experiencing now freedom or madness? It's true that a madman is free from logic and reason, but no one would call him free. When it comes to dating, is it freedom or are we experiencing, like we looked at last week, zero gravity, chaos? My hope for this talk is that as we dig into what God has to say about marriage, that he'd bring real gravity and clarity to this thing of dating and how it's connected to marriage. And to see that once you reconnect it to God's design for marriage, it brings incredible clarity and truth and light. But I do have another aim in this. Over this week, I was, looking, I was trying to find notes on a previous dating talk that I'd given. And I couldn't find it, so I had to go back and listen to the podcast. Yeah, if you ever listen to your own voice, I mean, it's a nightmare experience. But I learned two things from it as I listened to the whole, the whole talk. One was that I talk way too fast. It was just stressful. I had to stop it at points and be like, just take a breath, son. Just ease up. I, I don't know how you guys do it every week. Everyone must just go and have a panadol and a lie down afterwards or something. Anyway, I can't guarantee that I'm going to talk any slower, but it's at least on my mind. At least I've felt the pain that you feel now. We can, we can sympathize with that. That's one thing that I learned. The second one was that I never said it in the talk. But sometimes it can come across in an unspoken way, that if you just date God's way, then He will basically owe you a problem-free marriage. Now, I didn't believe that then, and I don't believe that now, but I think in not saying that or clearing that up at the the beginning, sometimes that could be the implication of things. We want you to understand what God has to say, and to be wise, and I wish I could tell you that that would guarantee that you were going to have an easy, problem-free, happy, Instagram-worthy marriage but it's not, going to be the, it's not necessarily the case. Scripture doesn't promise that. We can't go beyond what God says. It is the case that wise decisions are for the good of others and the glory of God, but it doesn't guarantee that life's going to be easy. But the flip side is also true, that even if you've been foolish about things, that there is hope and redemption for fools too. If we know anything from the gospel, the gospel of grace, it's that even for us sinners, there is still grace to go forward. And so I pray that as we dig into this, that you would see in the gospel of grace that there is hope and meaning and gravity for dating as we think about it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we open your word in Ephesians 5, that you would make clear your design for relationships and for marriage and for our lives. We pray that we would see clearly the gospel, your, your son dying in our place for our sin, and that at the heart of marriage is a desire to show in a small way the faithfulness of your love. And so, Father, as we think about these things, we pray that you'd give us clarity and light and all that you might be glorified in it. Amen. Well, the first point to make on dating and on reconnecting dating to marriage is that God is 100% sold on this one romantic institution that he's created for the flourishing of men and women in a sexual relationship, and it is Marriage. And the reason for it is there in Ephesians 5. Look at what he says. Ephesians 5, starting at sentence 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, the starting point here, as we dig into the Bible's explanation of marriage, is that it starts with Jesus. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is at the center of marriage and therefore dating. And the reason he's at the center is this, that marriage is not meant to be the ultimate love in the universe. As we saw last week, your life is not leading up to one climactic event, which is you getting married. The life is about Jesus. And that marriage is actually meant to be a living illustration in a small, dim way of God's faithful, persevering, unfailing, selfless love. That marriage, when it's working well and biblically, is in a, in a small way a similar reflection of that persevering love for sinners that God has. The command here to husbands is based upon Jesus' very actions. He says, husbands, just as Jesus laid down his life, bled out and died for the church, so you are to lay down your life for your wives. It's a radical call. But this is why God is sought on marriage, because it reflects... This committed, persevering, unfailing love of his. It's a small illustration of that. That's why this is his designated institution that he's sold on. He's not sold on marriage, but he is here, not sold on dating rather, but he is here sold on marriage. And this is why marriage matters to God and to the believer. This helps us with the why of dating. See, the idea is that that dating needs to honor marriage. In Hebrews 13.4, We read this, marriage is to be held in honor by all. Let marriage be held in honor by all. So God is sold on marriage, but doesn't really talk about any other pre-arrangement. Other than you get one reference in like uh, Corinthians 7 about betrothal, or kind of, it's probably a modern day equivalent of like engagement. Um, But other than that, there's nothing. All we're told is, whatever dating is, it must honor marriage and not dishonor it. And so the question becomes, well, can dating on a marriage? And I would say, pretty straightforwardly, I think it can. Taking time before you jump into a massive commitment. As we saw last week, marriage is a lifelong, death-bound commitment to another person. A one-flesh union. It's not a casual arrangement. It's not a celebration of friendship. It's a one-flesh union. Taking time to think, is this someone that I could build that with till death do us part, is wise, isn't it? That would honor the weightiness and gravity of marriage. Needless to say, maths does not honor marriage. And the results are reasonably predictable. It's a novelty and it's an attention-seeking spectacle. But nobody is, nobody is, in a sense, expecting that healthy marriages are going to come out. of. I mean, if it does, it's just by the sheer grace of God. The idea of starting in that way doesn't honor the weightiness of it. And so it can be the case that dating really honors God's vision of marriage by taking this thing seriously. But I would also say that if you're a follower of Jesus, the way you date is going to have to be radically different from the way our culture understands dating. If you're a believer, you believe that sex and marriage are there for the glory of God, that he is the center of gravity for all of it. But the prevailing view of our culture is that sex is primarily about self-expression. And those are two radically different ways of understanding sex, sexuality, and marriage. And for that reason, dating is the preferred romantic arrangement from the years of 15 to sort of mid-30s. In our culture, that is the primary arrangement, that people would actually vote dating over marriage for that period of life. And the way it generally works is a little bit like musical chairs, that basically in our culture you kind of you date and date and date and then it's like at 30 a biological clock goes off or someone turns the music off and you just whoever you're with at the time, settle down, marry, have kids with them, right? Buy a house, whatever it is. Kidding, it's Sydney. But um <laughs> But the way that you're to date as a Christian must be radically different. See the why of Christian dating is to honor marriage. And so that then helps us with the what? We're going to see the why of dating, then the what, then the when, then the who, other than the how, and then the who. But it helps us with the why. The why is to honor God's institution of marriage, and it makes clear what dating then is. See, it means that, that dating is not the space for a sexual relationship to flourish. But God has preserved that just for the covenant of marriage. And so what it means you're doing now is developing a friendship that is not yet sexualized. And what that means is that while God has designed for marriage to be the place where all sexual contact is to be, it means that there is none, therefore, in the context of dating. It means that you're in a brother-sister relationship. that whatever is proper in marriage is improper in the dating relationship. That means everything is out even I mean we had to define this. For, I'm a teacher, we had to do this for the DT. Even deep kissing, that's what it's called. Making out, passing, whatever you want to call it, right? Even that is out. Now you're like, when you said that like, dating was going to be radical, I didn't think like that kind of radical. This is basically like, you know, what, you just like you live in separate cities or like when you get together you have to have a chaperone. What is this about? But look, I would say to you that this, this radical vision that God has for dating and marriage is a blessing. And it's hard in our culture to understand. The idea that you could have a friendship with someone that you wouldn't sexualize. I remember speaking to a mate about the fact that when Mel and I were dating, she's now my wife, that we wouldn't kiss. And he said to me, he sat me it was concerned for me, so he sat me down so we could have a heart-to-heart, as a good friend should. And he said to me, he's like, so just let me get this straight. I've gone as far with your girlfriend as you have. So which I had to say, well, obviously, yes, but like, don't say it like that. Like, that's like... <laughs> Make it sound really awkward, but what he was wrestling with was, and I think this is a fair question. He's like, "But if you guys aren't in any way sexually connected, like, in what way are you together?" Because really, the way we understand dating and relationships is a mix of friendship, semi-commitment, and sex. So, what is it if it's not that? I don't say what it is. What you are building is a Christ-centered friendship, a friendship that centers on Jesus. And it's important not to sexualize it too soon so that you can work out whether or not what is really connecting you is a friendship centered on Jesus as opposed to something else. Sex is a powerfully bonding thing. And if you bond too soon, you might not be able to work out whether or not it's the sex that's connecting you or whether or not it's a friendship, a deep friendship centered on Jesus that's connecting you. And the reason that I say Christ-centered friendship and not just friendship is that friendship needs to be about something. C.S. Lewis says this on friendship just generally. He says, The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. There will be nothing for friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Which I, I don't know how many white mice and dominoes friendships you have, but just he's winding back the clock a little bit. Those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travellers. And he's right. Someone who wants to be your friend, not because you have anything in common, because they just want to be your friend, is a desperate and needy friend. It's not a healthy relationship. And in the same way, a dating relationship needs to be a Christ-centered friendship. There's something that unites you that is not just being with another person. And the reason this matters is twofold. It matters because you want it to be about Jesus and how he sees marriage and relationships and all these things, but also so that this person isn't the person that completes you, so that you don't need them, so that if this relationship wasn't to work out, that your world wouldn't fall apart. You would actually be okay. Do you want to build a friendship with them? But if that doesn't happen, it's not as if all your chips are on that single bet. But it also matters because then you'll be able to weigh up whether or not this thing really is working. Oftentimes, relationships have continued on well past their use-by date simply because someone just cannot bear the idea of not being with that person, even though the relationship is just not coming together. What you're building is a Christ-centered friendship. And this also helps in another profound way. It helps in developing a union, a basis ...for a lifelong sexual relationship. What you're trying to build... ...is an exclusive, non-sexualized, Christ-centered relationship. Now I realize at this point... ...you're like, that does not sound very exciting. No one's going to go up to... ...you can't imagine people in bars just being like... ...hey, what's up, gorgeous? Uh, Would you like to start an exclusive, non-sexualized, Christ-centered friendship? Like you just... ...that's the end of it right at the beginning. But I want to put to you why it is... ...that this is a beautiful vision for the start of a relationship and the foundation for what may be a marriage. I think in our culture, we've lost the ability to imagine intimacy without sexualizing it. Even the word itself tends to suggest that. And what we need to get skilled at is building non-sexualized intimacy, a friendship, and not an asexual friendship. An asexual friendship is one where you have no sexual desire, no desire to bond with the other person. If that's where you're at in your dating relationship, it is done at this point. I would have to say, something is going to need to change. But a non-sexualized one is where you actually really do, are connecting with them. It's someone that you actually have a desire for, and yet you're restraining that for a time to work out whether or not you're building a friendship. And again, it's just something our culture has no category for. Why would two people who are adults want to sleep with each other and not do it? Well, it's because intimacy and restraint are important. They matter for being a good lover, for being a good husband or wife. The art of restraint is one that really matters. Think of it this way. Growing up, learning, for me and a bunch of guys, learning to play cricket was interesting. I had no skill as a batsman. I never got any better, I was, just, I was always the tail ender, and I, and I think I got, I got six runs as my highest score, and four of those were leg buyers because I was trying to get out of the way, and it hit me on the glove, and then went through. <laughs> so that was, that was a disaster there, but I could bowl a little bit, and because I was tall, I could get a little bit of pace, but any—I mean, if you know anything about cricket, any young cricketer who wants to bowl, just, they have just one gear. And that's, I'm going to bowl this thing through the batter's face. Like that is, I'm going to bowl this thing through time. you just, you're trying to bowl as fast as you possibly can. You're just trying to bowl like, if you can get anywhere, you're hoping one day you'll be bowling at 160 or something like that, but until then, as fast as you can. Kids putting their backs out, shoulders out, whatever, just trying to get it down the pitch as quick as possible. But what you have to learn, and you learn pretty soon on if you've got a good coach, is that just bowling fast isn't any good. In fact, if the batter's a decent batter, bowling fast can be worse, because if your line and length is bad, it's really easy to pick you off. They don't have to do much work because the ball's traveling onto the bat. It's easy for them. You have to learn the skill of restraint. You have to change pace and line and length. A good bowler knows how to do it. It's the same with anything. You want to be a good artist? You don't come to the canvas and just try and paint the crap out of it, right? That's not... (laughs) That's not good artistry. That's not going to produce good art. Maybe in expressionism or whatever it is, right? But generally, it involves restraint and skill. I mean, pick any discipline. It's always the same. And it's the same if you're trying to build a lifelong marriage, which means a lifelong sexual relationship. Restraint is going to be part of that. Look what David Powlison has to say about it. He says, Our sexuality was designed to be a willing servant of love. It becomes distorted by our willfulness or our fear. Love makes sexuality focused, nothing wasted or promiscuously scattered. Every willing learner must learn, and often relearn, broad-spectrum self-control as a core expression of love. And those who will eventually marry will find that there are seasons where sexual restraint is the form love takes. It is not unkind of God to... To reserve that for marriage. That one of the things you can learn as a part of your Christ centered friendship is the skill of restraint. One of the things that often features as a part of, and this is oftentimes I think for Christian relationships in the dating time, is what a six year old Indian sexologist called pantyline. You've got to listen to that, right? Uh, is what, what she called pantyline sexuality, which is what she described as the idea of creating boundaries then breaking them, then feeling bad about it, then going through the whole process again. And the whole dating relationship can be so caught up with this kind of guilt and whatever cycle that you get to marriage and realize we haven't even built a friendship. I don't even know if I'm close to this person or not. It's been so caught up with managing boundaries and sexuality. And the problem with this is that it can also create the idea that what makes sex exciting is a sense of forbiddenness that's caught up with it, such that once you're in marriage, the only kind of sex that continues to be exciting is now also forbidden sex. Extramarital affair or or largely eroticized sex. This is not a healthy start to a relationship. More than that, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, look, this is exactly why Christianity is bad. It calls things forbidden that are clearly just healthy, and this this is why it's been ruining things forever. But I would say it's no different even if you are a couple that are completely skeptical about Jesus. What often characterizes dating relationships is a a fervent sexuality, that you get together, it becomes really sexual really quickly, and it's not a a period in which you learn restraint. And now, I'm I'm now at an age where I can start sentences with at my age, but I'll say to you that at my age and stage, many of the couples with kids and that sort of thing, are struggling with how to navigate a season of sexuality where both of you are not just set to max thirsty. And that matters. In the dating period, when sexuality is free-flowing and easy, that's quite easy to navigate. But you need to be a couple that know, do we have a friendship that can actually navigate those more difficult seasons of life, in sickness and in health, with kids, without kids, when there's trauma in the family? You're going to go through all of that. And so it matters. God's design is good in that way. The other thing it helps with is this, that when relationships are sexualized too quickly, sometimes it papers over issues that really need to get dealt with. Like sometimes the relationship gets too sexual too quickly. It might just be because both people just want it and that's it. But sometimes it's papering over issues. Like you don't really feel comfortable sexualizing this relationship but you're scared that if you don't, you're going to be rejected, and that's something that you just can't bear. It might be that you feel dirty or shameful because of things you've done or things done to you, and so you feel like, well, I'm just a dirty, shameful person who does dirty, shameful things. And instead of dealing with that, it's papered over by a fervent sexual relationship. Can I encourage you that Jesus does not talk about you like that? The blessing of this time in dating to develop a Christ-centered friendship is also a time to start dealing with some of those things and to know that Jesus doesn't speak about you like that. Look at what it says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. It says, Christ loved the church, that's you, and not in general, you in specific, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God says... You are washed clean. No matter what you have done or how people have treated you or spoken to you, he says you are clean before the God of the universe. And if he has declared you clean, who is there to stand against you? The dating time is a time to develop a Christ-centered friendship and to hold off on sexualizing it until the time is right. And if you have broken those boundaries, just remember that God is the God of redemption. Then no relationship is too broken for him to mend. If he could mend the relationship between humankind and God, he can mend yours. And it may be the case that you need a break, that things have just been a muddle of sex and and miscommunication and vagueness, and you just need a a time apart to work out what are we doing here and, and how do we really feel about each other. But to know that Christ knows you, loves you, forgives you, and he is the ultimate restorer and reconciler. And you can trust that. His design is good. So we've seen the why. The why is to be about marriage. The what is a Christ-centered friendship. And that makes clear the when. See, one of the things that affects when you date is, is once you see that this is about God and marriage, then it, it affects when you date. The question of when am I ready to date is when am I ready to marry? And the reason that that is a good and loving question to ask is because it would be crazy to involve your lives, to entangle your affections, emotions, your time, your relationships, and all these things, to then just say, actually, kidding, I'm not really ready, it's kind of how many years down the track. Or let's say, best case scenario, you get together with someone, marriage just isn't really in the picture. As you get together, you start to realize, yeah, we've got a Christ-centered friendship. This is someone that I think I could build a marriage with. I think actually God is calling us to this. And you're like, but now that we've become that close, just chill for like five years, I'm just going to finish my degree or get my career going or whatever it is, and then we'll kick things off. I will say that is not a loving approach. It gives clarity to the when. The when is when you're ready to marry. And so then it becomes, what about the how? There are some practicalities that I think go with this. Marriage is about Christ and the church and honoring Him. And I think it means we need to have some clarity about, about kicking off dating. And the reason for it is, I think in one way that would just be incredibly countercultural. I don't know if you know what memes are or if you love them, but I do. <laughs> and, um, and if you don't know what they are, a brief intro- introduction. Oh All right, let's wind it back a bit. Let's build a bit of suspense for that. And it, if, you, if you don't know what they are, basically they just take something, they're almost always observational humor. So it's something that people commonly experience enough to where when someone points out that it's a thing, it's funny. And so it's something that's observably true. And then, you know. 30% of the time it also involves maybe some knowledge of The Simpsons from seasons 5 through to 12, right? And so this next one is definitely that. But it's one that has come out in like sort of various forms. But this is, this is one of the, in a stream of memes called the So What Are We memes. And this one here, it just says the caption, when she hits you with that So What Are We Now? And to give you some context, if you don't know it, that's Principal Skinner and he is just fleeing the situation. It would take too long to explain Aurora Borealis and all the other things that go with it. But just know that he's fleeing. And so it becomes pretty clear like the kind of the experience that that's conveying. What it is is that uh, the stereotype that men generally are unwilling to be sort of bound up in a commitment of a relationship. And oftentimes it leaves the female partner trying to get some kind of clarity about what are we? We've slept together now. What are we? Are we a thing? Are we an item? Are we going anywhere? Whatever it is. And I don't mean to wade into a, a culture war on this. But I'd say observationally, it's men who seem to be the main beneficiaries of vagueness around relationships and sexualizing them. And the pattern that we have in Ephesians 5, and it's addressing men first particularly to say, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Be a man who instead of being self-serving, is self-sacrificing the way that Christ was. And so I would say it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a good pattern Men should be initiating in doing the difficult things in relationships, like being the one to ask and to set boundaries on how it is and and what it is that you're doing when you're dating. Because oftentimes, starting the relationship or actually defining it is a risk. It's a risk that you have to take. You might get rejected. It might be awkward, whatever it is. But it means if if you're to date in a way that honors God, it means bringing clarity to it. And so when you start a relationship, start it by defining what you are. Be clear about your intentions. If you want to date someone, to ask them. That doesn't mean that you have to sit down necessarily and say, "Say, would you like to say a non-sexualized, Christ-centered, you know, whatever relationship. But it does mean being clear about it. And yeah, that opens the possibility to being rejected and all those things. But the call is to be self-sacrificial in that, to be loving. To start well and to start clear. And it also means if you realize that this relationship isn't going somewhere, that you would call it soon as well and be really clear about it. That when it's over, you would talk to the other person and be clear about the fact that that that's how you're feeling, to pray about it beforehand, to get some wise counsel from a few people, not heaps of people, like the other person shouldn't hear that they're going to get broken up with before you actually speak to them. But it is a loving thing to speak the truth in love, even when that's a difficult conversation. And if you get to the point where you're ending a dating relationship, I'd encourage you with this bit of wisdom as well. That when you end it, really end it. You are friends and once you end it, I know this probably isn't what you want to hear, but right after that you won't be friends. And the more you try to be friends, as counterintuitive as it is, the more cruel you'll be to the other person. Because if you've ended this relationship and you're sure of that, and they really want it to get back together, and you keep texting, calling, hanging out, you are just stretching it out for longer and longer and longer. And that makes it really difficult and painful. If you're to end it, then to end it, and to be really clear about that. It's a loving and right thing to do. It says in the book of Proverbs that faithful are the wounds of a friend. The hard thing is when when a dating relationship ends, the way to be a faithful friend is often to wound. And that's a hard thing. But we're called to be loving in it. And the last one then on this is, if this is what dating is, then it means not acting like you're married. It can be the case that when couples finally get together, they just go harder than Brooklyn. They're just Their whole lives just get wrapped up together. In fact, you might have seen this story, but uh, just have a look at this picture here. It's not a sad thing. This isn't an actual funeral. But a bunch of lads in the UK... One of their friends started a dating relationship where uh, he just got fully involved in the relationship. So they actually held and went to extreme lengths to hold a funeral for him. He was so he was so gone from their friendship circles that they poor Kieran Cable just has become famous worldwide for being that lad who um, who just disappeared into a relationship. And so they, I mean, they went all out. They had a wake. They had testimonials and videos. There was like a whole thing afterwards and everything. Like they really they really put in. But it kind of picks up on the thing that we, we know that it's often the case that this can happen. And oftentimes if it's someone's first serious relationship, it's like they've been waiting their whole life for it. And it's like in compensation for all the relationships that weren't there before, they just triple down on this one. And the truth is that you are not married. And there are certain things that are reserved just for marriage, It doesn't mean that you spend now your whole lives together. You are not yet one flesh. And it can be that couples get together and they're like, can I hang out with you? Can I meet your family? Can I be around you? Can I uh, drive to the shops with you? Can I do your tax return with you? Like just just calm, calm. Just pace it out a bit. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And so that's going to mean that what you're to do is to be different to a marriage relationship. That all the things that actually help a marriage relationship and a sexual relationship to flourish in marriage are now not there for you. That means not, not living together, not going away together, not wrapping up your lives together in such a way as you would when you finally are a one-flesh relationship. And why? Because it's not dating that honors marriage. God has one permanent institution for men and women to get together in a covenant-committed relationship. And that brings us finally to the who. The who of it is that you would marry someone who wants to build a Christ-centered marriage with you as well. A believer. Now, and I realize that may sound like really exclusive and narrow, right? How is that a good way to do things? Well, Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about divorce and remarriage, speaks to a group of people saying, look, you can marry again, but only in the Lord. Or in Corinthians 6, when he talks about the fact that we're not too yoked to an unbeliever, he's saying, look, th- that you really are to be with someone else who is a believer. And you might think, well, why? How is that good? How is that not just narrow and exclusive? Well, in many ways, it's just kind, isn't it? To go into a relationship with someone and to say to them, I actually want you to be someone else when we finally get married is not a helpful starting dynamic for a relationship. I like, think of it like this. I had a friend who was they were dating for like, a good couple of years. They broke up. And he didn't want the relationship to end. She broke it off. And after several months, they kind of got back together. But the relationship was totally different. He was walking on eggshells. And he knew it because she'd already broken up with him once. And so he was, it was like he was on probation. And the dynamic in their relationship was completely disrupted. He just seemed like a, like a, a cowering puppy following her around. And it wasn't helpful because there was this expectation that like, You need to be a different type of guy than you were before. And if you're not, well, you know what's going to happen. Now, she didn't mean it that way, but it's how it came across. And to get into a relationship with someone in the hope that they're going to change is not a healthy start to it. You want to start clear. And if you're looking to build a Christ-centered friendship and a Christ-centered marriage, to do that with someone who wants to do it too. But even on all of this, it's worth making mention That life is not about marriage. And if things haven't worked out for you in the way that you date, if things haven't worked out for you in your marriage now further on, that there is a marriage to look forward to that Jesus said will end all marriages. That when he returns, that marriage will have lived out its purpose as a dim illustration of the final marriage when Jesus will bring home his church from every tribe, nation and tongue. When he'll wipe away every tear from every eye, when He'll judge the living and the dead, when He'll welcome His people home forever. That that is the wedding that we look forward to most of all, the one that will not and cannot disappoint. And so I'd urge you as we think on these things week in and week out with relationships, that we not lose sight of the fact that that is the final wedding to which all who follow Jesus look forward to. And I'm going to pray that He would grant us that hope by His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have given us the hope of the gospel that in Jesus we have something to look forward to, a time when you will deal with finally and fully the problem of sin, that you have dealt with the penalty of sin on the cross, that all who believe in you may have their sins washed away and be made new. And yet there is one day when you will deal with the sin in our hearts that we might live forever with you in relationship, that you will restore the nations, that you will end war, and until that time, Father, we pray that you would help us to be wise, that you would help us to be loving and self-sacrificial. And all of this based on the love that Jesus poured out for us at the cross. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to take a time to reflect on these things, and after that, Gav will lead us in the next part of our meeting.